0: Welcome to PICT Voices, a podcast series by the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking. In each episode, one of us from the PICT faculty conducts an interview on with a notable member of the broader PICT community. Our goal is to present our followers with a variety of voices across the spectrum of the humanities and critical creative thinking. My name is Avery Amir Sayers and my guest today is Michael Berry. Michael served as a lecturer in Islamic culture at Princeton University from 2004 to 2017 and has been university professor at the American University of Afghanistan in Kabul since fall 2017. His association with Afghanistan spans 35 years and has included ethnographic research and humanitarian work with institutions such as the International Federation for Human Rights and the United Nations. Michael is also an expert on Islamic art, who spearheaded the reorganization of the New York Metropolitan Museum's Galleries of Islamic Art in 2011 and has served as a consultant to Aga Khan Trust for Culture. Michael publishes in French and English on a range of topics from classical Persian poetry to the Venetian plays of Shakespeare. Finally, Michael has a special place in our hearts at PICT since he endorsed us by delivering our first ever PICT honorary lecture on Matisse and Islamic art in 2018. Hello Michael and welcome to the program.
1: Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to your questions and I hope I can answer them.
0: (laughs) Thank you. So my first question is one that I think will interest our listeners following current affairs in France. It is a question of representative depiction in Islam. There is a common assumption that the religion of Islam forbids the depiction of living beings as blasphemy. In particular, as you know, caricatures of the Islamic prophet in the French journal Charlie Hebdo have been connected to manifestations of horrific violence in France. Now, Michael, you are the author of an academic book on figurative art in Islam, and during and after my academic work with you, I distinctly remember seeing various Islamic miniatures that openly depicted the islamic prophet could you shed some light on the questions of representative depiction in the islamic tradition
1: okay initially one can say that there is abundant event, evidence ranging from the 14th century to the 18th century in the great royal courts of turkey and iran and central asia and india of depictions of all the prophets, including Adam and Moses and Solomon and Jesus in the Islamic perspective, and finally um, culminating in depictions of the prophet Muhammad himself, which means that if certain modern Muslims want to take issue with representations of the prophet, they are going to have to launch an all-out attack against Ottoman civilization Safavid civilization, Timurid civilization, Mughal civilization, Uzbek civilization over centuries. So that's a very tall order. To go more deeply into the problem, Islamic civilization wrestled with the question of icons, iconophobia, or embrace of icons. Islam arose in a Middle Eastern setting, which was horn by disputes between opponents and upholders of icons we know that the civilization of constantinople was practically destroyed by civil war between the defenders and the opponents of icons so islam appears in this context and strangely enough the muslim caliphs of damascus gave asylum to the defenders of icons when the opponents of icons were in power in Constantinople. So things are much more complex. What we see is that Islamic civilization by the first imperial caliphate in Damascus came to a compromise which has endured really until the convulsions of the 20th century, which was figurative art was banned from the shrines, was banned from the mosques, was banned from the illumination of the Holy Scriptures, but figurative art was retained in the service of royalty, not only as frescoes on the palace walls, but as glorious manuscript illuminations put together in royal workshops for the edification of the royal family including the ruling sovereign and the princes and the princesses and so we have literally tens of thousands of illustrated books most of whom to which are on religious subjects and depict all the prophets so just in strict historical terms the current position of the fundamentalists is one of extreme iconophobia but is belied by the historical experience of the civilization. Then at a much deeper and spiritual level, figurative art came to be justified in Islamic civilization by the 15th century, so quite a long time ago, as an expression by which artists reproduced a miracle attributed to Jesus in certain apocryphal traditions of Christianity, and most especially in the Quran itself, that the child Jesus, with God's permission, molded birds of clay, blew upon them, and gave them life with God's permission, whereby any artist who allowed his mind to be filled with the Spirit of God would then create images with the permission of God. And this was actually the theological justification for images at the royal courts of the Timurids and Ottomans and Safavids and Uzbeks and Mughals. So there again, the current iconophobic fundamentalists are insurgents not only against perceived non-Muslim aggression, but against a very vital part of Islamic tradition itself. However, I want to quote um, the very eminent specialist of Islamic fundamentalist movements in France today, Gilles Kepel, who recently told a Spanish newspaper, the Spanish daily El Pais, we must not allow ourselves to become hostages to idiotic jars of caricature. By which he means that the cartoons that were actually published by Charlie Hebdo magazine, availing themselves of freedom of the press and freedom of expression in French culture, were so absolutely beyond irreverent, so absolutely obscene, and I don't even have to describe them graphically, that we are forced to take pause. I certainly am very, very much um, sympathetic to Charlie Hebdo's general charge against all religious traditions, whether Christian, mostly Jewish, Islamic, or whatever. But the fact is that the taste of those drawings, if they had depicted Jewish subjects instead of Muslim subjects, objectively would have been called anti-Semitic and going beyond the pale of acceptability. And this raises a major question. Where I join Gilles Kepel is in insisting that such an important and profound series of debates concerning freedom of religion and freedom to criticize religion, concerning artistic freedom, and concerning our proper understanding of artistic traditions and iconic traditions in Islamic civilization, all this should not be dragged down to an obscene level where the Charlie Hebdo pictures could be seen not just as taking to task modern clerics, for example, but actually befouling, soiling some of the most sacred associations of. The people who by now constitute the largest religious community in France itself, right after Roman Catholicism. So it's a very, very delicate question. And I think the only way to answer it is the way Gilles Kepel answers answers it, which is appeal to intelligence and responsibility.
0: Thank you for that, Michael. Uh, I feel that this is the kind of information that many people in the so-called West sorely lack, not least because the word Islam has commonly uh, come to mean for non-Muslims in the West, something that is categorically alien, categorically other, and separated from what we call the West by some kind of unbridgeable historical, cultural, religious, civilizational divide. Now, uh, I know for a fact that your work, Michael, often disproves this easy generalization uh, and and speaks to historical, artistic, and philosophical continuities that, that undermine the idea of a categorical divide. Would you like to speak a bit to these continuities, especially on the philosophical level?
1: So the discontinuity between Islam and what we usually call Western civilization should at first come as a surprise, given that Islam is rooted in the same set of Semitic scriptures and Islamic philosophy is rooted in the same legacy of Greek philosophy as Roman Catholicism, or for that matter, uh, classical and medieval Judaism. So why does Islamic civilization seem so strange to people who are heirs mostly to the Christian cultures? And I think part of the answer was given by one of the most most eminent Turkish historian of the 20th century, Halil İnalcik, when he described the classical Ottoman state of the 16th and 17th centuries as a neo-Sassanian state. And he was so correct. The great difference between Christian civilization and Islamic civilization historically arises from The fact that Christian civilization claims to be the fulfillment of Greco Roman civilization, the world united under the Romans to receive the message of Christ, so that all Christian kings are crowned as Roman emperors and are anointed with holy oil as successors to David. In the Islamic tradition, while the Greek philosophy and the Semitic scriptures remain largely the same, the imperial tradition was instead claimed to be the Sasanian, with the explanation that the Sasanian Persian kings had united much of the world in the sixth century of the common era when Muhammad was born, precisely by God's will to prepare the world to receive the Muhammadan message. So what you have are two civilizations which are two-thirds joined in theology and in philosophy, but one-third disjointed with one claiming the Roman heritage and the other claiming the Persian heritage. And it is this Sasanian Persian heritage which makes Islamic civilization look so exotic to uninformed Western eyes. But again, to go to the past before coming to the present, it's very interesting that in Dante's hell, Muhammad should be set among those who have caused schism and religious divide as if Muhammad in traditional Christian eyes were not the founder of a new religion, but a heretic within a common tradition. And certainly we know That no wars are more fierce, more unrelenting than civil wars, than wars between those who believe themselves the true believers, the Orthodox, against those who are branded as heretics. And Christians and Muslims have warred through the centuries based on what they consider to be differing interpretations of the same fundamental theological and philosophical assumptions. So the intellectual effort required in the West today is to recognize the alien Persian elements, but to embrace what is common in a fundamental understanding of the deep kinship between traditional Christian and traditional Islamic civilization with the Jews historically having played the role of a bridge between both sides, notably in Spain. I call upon Western educational curricula to integrate Islamic civilization into the general panorama of civilization, dismissing the notion that you can remain ignorant of Islamic civilization and still call yourself a cultured person. That is no longer possible, and it feeds More of this misapprehension, misunderstanding, and often resentment, hatred, hence murder. Islamic civilization is part of the great family of civilizations and certainly a very, very close parent of so-called Western civilization.
0: So, Michael, your words made me think of our time at Princeton. Uh, This was in the early 2010s, and the Near Eastern Studies Department was hosting a lot of courses and events on the so-called Islamist extremism, Uh, for example, on medieval Muslim thinkers who inspired radical Islamist thinkers today. In contrast, there was little attention to Muslim historical figures such as Rumi or Ibn Arabi, who represent the inclusive, mystical, and undogmatically philosophical strands of the Islamic tradition. To what do we owe this myopic focus of academic research? What kind of Islam are our academic institutions and our media, in effect, producing for us to consume? What alternative traditions inside Islam are being ignored and why?
1: Well, regarding this myopic view, I have to use very strong language. I believe that when a Western institution of higher learning refuses or neglects to address the classical heritage of a given civilization under consideration only to concentrate on aberrant political manifestations thereof, it is betraying its fundamental academic mission because the word Islam is so charged now, I would like to draw analogies to two other civilizations that an institution like mine, Princeton University, always addressed in a balanced and let's call it a classically conservative manner. One was German civilization. It was understood that an institution of higher education and research would always pay attention to the important contributions of German civilization to humanity, from Goethe's poetry to Bach's and Mozart's music, than simply to the chronicle of the rise and fall of the Nazi party. To have concentrated exclusively on 1933 to 1945 to the exclusion of everything that happens in the German-speaking world before 1933 would be perceived as an intellectual fraud, a manifestation of hatred, prejudice, and distortion of the facts. If I take another analogy, China. I studied Chinese at Princeton, and I was always very impressed by how the university was such a rich conservatory for documentation, thought, creative intellectual engagement with the high classical Chinese tradition in philosophy, in poetry, in painting, in various inventions. Whereas study of Maoism, including its most extreme form, taken by the Red Guard movement in the 1960s, was taken in perspective as only part of our general vision of the Chinese world. This approach of one taking into account the full range of a civilization in order to be able to analyze more deeply certain aberrant movements in that civilization is what I have been defending both in Princeton and at the Metropolitan Museum in New York, but also on the spot in Kabul, Afghanistan, where one faces serious death threats, which I cannot hide. So this is a fundamental intellectual commitment. I believe that over-exaggerated emphasis, on aberrant movements in Islamic civilization, which in their ferocity, like Daesh, for example, practically approached Nazism, is a perversion of the mind, is a perversion of our mission. It is just as necessary when you're talking about Chinese civilization, to be aware of Laozi, Zhuangzi, Confucius, as to be aware of Mr. Mao and Mrs. Mao that when you are talking of German civilization, you are just as aware of Goethe and Schopenhauer and Bach as you are aware of uh, Hitler and Goebbels and Himmler. Just so in our approach to Islamic civilization, we are simply bound, it is a categorical moral imperative to study Ibn Arabi and Rumi and the great mystical tradition, the great artists, the great architects, as to lavish so much attention on the growth of movements like ISIS, Daesh, or Al-Qaeda, the strange Wahhabi school of Saudi Arabia, and the like. And by concentrating the overwhelming majority of our intellectual resources only to the study of aberrant political new movements of the, let's say they do start in the 14th century, but which really came to the fore at the end of the 20th century, we are perverting our general sense of the culture, actually weakening our analysis and betraying our fundamental academic mandate, which is to preserve the full range of knowledge concerning any human culture.
0: Uh, From what you describe, Michael, uh, it seems abundantly clear that Islamic history is not monolithic and that it is, in fact, full of free thinkers, of critical and controversial figures revered and debated to this day. I'm particularly thinking of figures uh, such as Nasimi or Halad, uh, principled figures who took dissenting stances and immortalized their dissent in Islamic history by paying for it with their lives. In light of this rich tradition, How do you assess ongoing calls from the West for Islamic reform? Does Islam need the West to reform itself, whatever that might mean? Or would it be better to take this call for reform with a pinch of salt?
1: Uh, I'm willing to throw a whole salt shaker in all directions. But I think it's fair to say that most human civilizations, as complex creations that they are, often bear in themselves very poisonous seeds. And these seeds can grow within the civilization and ultimately uh, lead the civilization to self-destruction. By this, I mean, I identify, for example, in German civilization, there was a seed of tremendous resentment against Germany's European neighbors and a German desire to reaffirm German superiority, which became paramount in the two mad regimes of Wilhelm II and Adolf Hitler in the 20th century, leading to self-destructive world wars. Just as I would say in the United States, the seed of poison in the American system has been slavery and its corollary racism which continues to poison with its legacy American culture today. So it is necessary to take this balanced approach and understand how Islam too has had in all its variety its defenders of a form of free speech, its great mystical thinkers, its philosophical probers into the deepest truths of cosmology or psychology, and at the same time, there are strains in Islamic civilization which produced the current disaster through which Islam is going. Now, regarding the confrontation with the so-called West, you have heard me say that I subscribe to uh, the British historian Toynbee's fundamental assessment that all civilizations die by suicide. They kill themselves with certain mad ideas, and then an external civilization only delivers the final death blow. I would trace the decline of Islamic civilization to precisely the same reasons as the decline of Chinese civilization, overwhelming arrogance the Ottoman Turks at the turn of the 15th and 16th centuries believed that they had attained the absolute summit of human progress, that they knew everything that there was to know. So when new developments occurred in the Christian lands, such as printing for the diffusion of knowledge or the replacement of the Ptolemaic by the Copernican, cosmological system, Ottoman Turkey refused these considerations and was followed, through its example, by the other Islamic states. The consequences of such an arrogant view could not fail to make themselves felt, and they did by the 19th century with what we can call the political collapse of Islamic culture, now going through convulsions as it tries to reclaim just like the Chinese do, a proper place among the community of nations. Where the West has tremendous moral responsibility is not Western as such. It is that in those areas where we have the freedom to think, express, and research, and where we have the material resources to be able to carry out such research, great libraries and the rest of it. It is our duty as humanists and as human beings to analyze these intellectual movements and political catastrophes in order to achieve what is our fundamental humanistic goal, the reintegration through dialogue of the whole family of human civilizations.
0: Uh, Michael, uh, on one level, it seems to me that uh, we've been talking about why the example of Islam is a battle between the opening and closing of interpretation. On the one hand, we have an approach that gives us clear-cut definitions that tell us what is what and that teaches us what we need to know so we don't need to ask further questions. On the other hand, we have an approach that rejects these definitions and always keeps the question uh, open in the hope, not of supplying ultimate answers, but of producing opportunities for critical and creative thinking, opportunities for individuals to learn how to question and think. Could you describe this historical process for us, Michael, and what we can learn from it today?
1: Uh, Yes, I can. And here I do uh, confess I'm tremendously influenced by much of um, Toynbee's thinking I I want to take off the Islamic labels and address what seems to be a more common human trend, which is that civilizations, as they grow, face challenges and overcome them. But in the very triumph over certain challenges, they tend to ossify and fossilize in worship of themselves, in a kind of complacent, self satisfied conviction that they have already succeeded and they have nothing further to learn. And this has happened to pharaonic Egyptian civilization and to, um, I would say, the modern United States in its make America great again type of sloganeering betrays that sort of tendency. Chinese civilization certainly suffered from this when it closes to the outside world and to all fresh currents of thought by the beginning of the 15th century. In other words, all these civilizations commit this kind of mental suicide, which is why when looking at Islam from this international perspective, I find I don't really need, although I will use, I don't need to use these particularly Islamic terms such as opening the gates of ijtihad and closing the gates of ijtihad meaning opening the gates of speculative reasoning and then closing the gates of speculative reasoning but i find challenging not just for muslims but for human beings everywhere how islamic civilization when in the 15th and 16th centuries it was reaching its greatest expanse on earth its most unquestionable military uh, conquests when Istanbul under the Ottomans was one of the great empires of the planet. It is at just that moment that you see Islamic thought fossilizing into worship of itself. Whereas the older tradition, as with Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, had always been questioned Doubt. Place yourself permanently under examination, and only with a self-critical perception do civilizations continue to grow with vitality. When they ossify into self-worship, then they begin to die, and that, is, that was the fate of Islam, but not only of Islam, but I hope I've, un- I've answered your question in more universal terms as to the question of opening or closing the gates of speculation, it's sh-tihad.
0: Michael, uh, yes, yes, you did. And and thank you very much for uh, joining us on the program today. You have given us a lot uh, to think about on a cluster of issues that is often discussed, but just as frequently misunderstood in today's heated climate of public debate. I think your comments show us that current affairs are inevitably distorted when they are presented to us without the required historical and conceptual depth. Thank you for your enlightening comments.
1: You're very welcome.
0: Uh, That brings us to the end of Another Picked Voices. Thank you all for tuning in and we hope to challenge you with Another Picked Podcast very soon.